I happen to be in uh, Ephesians 4 this morning, and uh, the whole uh, theme in the first half of that chapter is that uh, some gifts are given by Christ to the church, primarily leadership gifts, to equip everyone else in the church to serve the ways God has gifted and called them. And uh, Kent mentioned a couple of phrases and texts that are on my uh, teaching sheet this morning, and that's one of them that um, everybody, if you're a Christian, you have a role in the body of Christ. If you're a Christian, if Christ is your Savior, if you have the Holy Spirit, you have been gifted and called to serve others in the body of Christ. And the real question isn't, am I gifted? It's, am I serving? And so whether it's kids Sunday school or it's you're praying for somebody else or you're gifted to show mercy or encouragement, whatever it is, if all of us aren't serving, others are suffering a lack that they needn't suffer. And I think the tendency for a lot of us is, excuse me, we come to a, a service like this, and this service is good for some things and really lousy, for others, because if, if this service frames the way we think, we say, I don't teach, I'm not a, a musician, I don't help lead worship, I, I'm not needed, which is exactly the opposite of the truth. The gifts that you see in leadership are meant to get everybody else involved in serving. And so if you don't have a place to serve right now, I hope you'll find one, okay? Everybody is absolutely needed. Also, along that line, I wanted to specifically thank Larry Stewart. You know that last Sunday, it was so weird. I saw people sitting in the lobby, and I thought, well, that's weird. They want to be close. I didn't realize there was no sound in the addition. So everybody was scrunching in. And Larry has gone to hell and back this last week to try and get sound restored in the addition and uh, was getting nowhere. All the phone calls, all the entreaties to the folks that provide our hardware, and come and do service, and they showed up this morning, and it was working. (laughs) (laughs) So, anyway, it takes a lot of people serving, so we we certainly want to be characterized by that. Moving to the the message at hand, I'm going to start by talking about the Apostle John, and then that's going to lead us into the message this morning, which is 2 John. The Apostle John was unique among the 12 apostles, guys, because he didn't die a martyr's death. You know, as far as we know, he's the only one of the called commission, 12 apostles, uh, Jesus specifically called, gave authority to, and sent out. The only one that didn't die a martyr's death. Uh, some of this, you know, you get in Scripture, but others is just, it's, it's history, and sort of it's our best historic understanding of what happened. But it appears that the apostles scattered through the Roman Empire and beyond uh, Thomas, it said, went to India. In fact, um, there are there's a Christian element of the nation of India that's been there historically, and they'll tell you that's because the apostle Thomas came here. But as those apostles scattered, they were all martyred. You know, we've got a little bit more historical data on Peter and Paul, and understand that they both ended their lives as martyrs under Nero around 67 A.D. in Rome. So John. John was unique, and John is the author of the gospel that shares his name. He's the author of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John letters he wrote, and then he's the human author of the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. It's assumed that John lived until about 100 AD, 
And that's in part derived because we think the book of Revelation appears to have been written around 95 AD. And I mean, on one hand, Jesus is crucified, let's just say 33, um, Jerusalem is destroyed in 70 AD, but you're still within close proximity historically to Jesus and to all the events of his suffering, crucifixion, resurrection, in the early days of the church. And within John's lifetime, while he's an apostle is still around, the heresies that would flourish later through history, they were already started. They were already making the rounds. And so he's going to confront some of those, especially in his letters. We'll, we'll be in Second John today. This is part of the All Scriptures Inspired series in which we're just doing one lesson on books of the Bible that otherwise hadn't, uh, didn't have a place in our roll call of messages online. So we're covering those bases. Uh, we'll be in Second John. You can turn there if you have a Bible or an app. What you'll find is Second John is going to continue and it's going to add to a theme, a couple key themes that are brought up in John's first letter. And, and especially we'll talk about this, there's a couple big rocks, but really having to do with heresies. And when you read church history, especially in the early days of the church and in, in those first few centuries and a little beyond, <clears throat> what you see is all these errors, these ways of talking about Jesus primarily that were deficient and that weren't true. So all the early councils of the church, if you think of the Apostles' Creed or the councils of Nicaea, all of these things were dealing with who is Jesus? Who is he? What is he? And what did he do? And, and how, does that, how does that go along with God the Father and the Spirit? So everything early on was revolving around the person and work of Jesus, and you see that in spades in John's writings. Guys, here's the thing. If we get Jesus wrong, if we get Jesus wrong, who he is, maybe if you'd say too what he is, and what he did, we have no Savior, we have no gospel, and we have no hope. That's what John says. That's not Mike's extrapolation. That's what John says. If you don't have Jesus, you don't have God. If you have God, it's because you have Jesus. And that's where John's going to take us this morning in that second letter. John's warnings in his second letter remain, uh, we would say, as important, but more important today, at least in this sense. The, the heresies that were starting there were sort of in incipient form. You know, it's like the seeds were being planted. But guys around the world today, it's not just that a lot of people would say, I'm an atheist, I don't believe in God, I don't have a religious view of life, or I'm an agnostic, there might be a God, but I'm not trying to define him, don't have anything to say about him. That represents a whole bunch of people. That view of life is deficient because it doesn't acknowledge God our creator and Jesus our savior. But think of, think of the numbers of religions and religious claims around the world. That's actually where we'll end this morning. All of those, God tells us, John tells us, the scriptures tell us, all of those are foundations of lies. Every, every claim, every religious claim on the earth today that doesn't say who Jesus is and what he did, we're told by God in his word they're lies. And friends, 1 John says the whole world lies under the power or the influence of the evil one. And so the world system you and I live in, it's governed, it's ruled, it's undergirded by lies. And so Christians, we have this huge responsibility 
make disciples of all the nations. We're proclaiming the gospel. Romans 1, the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And then as those who have embraced Christ in the gospel, we've got the responsibility to live like it. And that's really John's hallmark. That's what he's going to be talking about this morning. There's not many books of the Bible that you can read the whole thing. These letters are short. We're going to read the whole letter. Then we'll go back and we'll look at the three big rocks. But if you have your text, I'm going to read from the ESV. Only 13 verses long. I'll pause briefly in that, and then we'll look at the three major points. So this starts out this way. The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, not only I, but also all who know the truth because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son in truth and love. I'm going to pause here just for a second. On the front end here, we say John wrote this epistle, this short epistle, and you say, well, his name's not there, and we say, well, we get that, but here's the thing. <clears throat> When you read, if you, matter of fact, if you read 1 John and then you read 2 John, you say it's the same author. And one of the things you notice if you read the Gospel of John, John rarely mentioned himself by name. He usually says something like the Apostle Jesus loved. So this is an author who usually doesn't speak by name when he's writing. And that's the same thing here. And also when this letter would have been written, when he calls himself the elder, John would have been old. He lived to be quite an old man. He was elderly, we would say. So he was an old man. He's the old man that's writing. But he's also, as far as we know, this isn't in Scripture, but history tells us that John eventually migrated to the city of Ephesus where he would have served not only as an apostle, the last living apostle, but he would have been one of the elders, one of the, those in leadership in the local church in Ephesus as well. So whether he's saying John the old man, not by his name, or simply one of the elders from the church of Ephesus, we understand this is the same John that lived with Jesus, that walked with Jesus, that was there at the crucifixion. It's the same guy. So the author. And then as far as who he's writing to, if you read the commentaries, there's a ton of ink spilled on who is or what is the elect lady. So the two big options are the elect lady is a lady. I know this is a dumb moment, but that's one option. The elect lady, it's even, I think it's kuria in the Greek. It might even be that kuria is that woman's name. Don't know. Don't know for sure. The other option is that this is a local church, and that's, frankly, that's my assumption, and that's the comments I make this morning. We'll assume this is a local church. When Peter closes out his first letter, 1 Peter 5, he refers to the church in Rome as she who is in Babylon. It's not an individual, it's the church. And as you know, in the New Testament, when you're talking about the epistles especially, the church is described as a female. That's and just as Israel was in the Old Testament as well. So my, my best understanding, having read lots of commentaries, is that it's a local church, and so my comments will be about the plural setting of the church. So back to verse 4. So John the Apostle writing to what we understand, what I understand is a church, he continues, I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, 
but the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. This is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it, or we would say so that you live in it, you live it out. For, verse 7, many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. The com so the denial is this, they deny the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh, the coming that he existed before conception and incarnation. He came because he already was. If you read 1 John 1, by the way, you'll see that that's the key theme in that chapter as well, the opening to that first letter. Um, such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ, so this would be the apostolic teaching about Jesus, does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting, for whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. The children of your elect sister greet you. The children there, I understand, would be the believers in the church from which John is writing. So I hope you have a study sheet. The first big rock we're looking at here, we're taking these sort of in the order in which they appear in the letter, has to do with truth. If you look back there at the beginning, verses 1 through 4, just look at the repetition of the term true and truth. Verse 1, the apostle loves this lady, this church in truth, and not only him, but all who know the truth. And they love, they love the church there in truth because of the truth that abides in us. Jesus Christ is the Father, Son in truth. And verse 4, he rejoiced to see some of her number walking in truth. Five uses of the word truth in four verses. Truth is a big deal for John. We'll talk a little bit more about that in just a second. The, the Greek that he's using here is aletheia. Aletheia. And aletheia is a compound word, so if you broke it in where it belongs. The A on the front means not. And let's see, uh, lanthano means hidden. So truth is defined by a negative. So the truth is that which is not hidden. Or we would say positively, the truth is um, the way things really are. Uh, truth represents reality. Uh, so it's, it's stated as a negative, it's something that's not hidden, it's not ignorance, it's not I'm left in the dark. Truth is, I know something in the light, I, I have knowledge of something, I don't lack it, I have it. And when John writes, so if you, if you look up the English words true, truth, and truly in his gospel, it's used a hundred times, a hundred times. That's more often than the key word in John's gospel, which is believe. A hundred times. Uh, some of those you'll know, you'll remember. You remember Jesus says about 25 times, uh, depending on your translation, truly, truly, or it's amen, amen, or it's verily, verily. It's all from the Greek, uh, amen, which means faithful, uh, count on it. 
So true and truth is a big deal for John. Are we living our life according to truth? And John's hinging all of that on the person and work of Jesus. That if we know Jesus, we know truth. If we don't know Jesus, we don't know truth. Uh, think of this. I'm not, I'll just give a couple of examples. From John's Gospel, Jesus is the true light. Light as revelation. Jesus is the true light. Or uh, that's John 1, 9, John 14, 6. You remember Jesus said he was the way, the truth. He is truth with a capital T. He, he uh, is inherently within himself not only what he says or what he does, he is inherently within himself that which is true. Jesus is full, this is a great verse out of chapter 1, Jesus is full of grace and truth. You know, sometimes you say, if you poke someone, what would come out? If you poke Jesus, you get grace and truth, favor and truth. Uh, John 8.32 is a great verse, great memory verse. You remember uh, Jesus said, you'll... Um, if you abide in my word, if you live in my word, you're really my follower. And as one who abides in my word and follows me, you will know the truth. And because you know the truth, you will be free. This assumes that if we don't know what's true, we are enslaved. And what we are enslaved to is lies, some version of of a lie, some version of a deception. We've either Im imbibed for ourselves, we've chosen to live under, or something that we've believed because someone else has told us. The truth is a big deal. So here John says uh, his love for the church is true. It's true love. It's real. He says that others in Christ share that same love for that local church, for the elect lady. And he also says they share the truth in the knowledge of God in Christ. So so true, true, true. And I want to just spend a little bit more time in this. He continues by defining Jesus as truly the Son of God, the Father. Verse 3, Jesus Christ, the Father's Son, in truth and love. Uh, the Apostle John, in Scripture broadly, unabashedly assert, Jesus is truly God and he's fully man. Uh, for many Christians, Orthodox Christians, this is a dumb moment, but this is what was in play when John wrote these epistles. The claims were Jesus is not, in fact, they're all over the place. So either, either um, Jesus wasn't fully God on his deity, he wasn't really fully God, or he wasn't fully man, or, or he was a real man and the Spirit of God came on him for a while and then left. So there were all kinds of interpretations on this. So this is what was in play. So John is making the case that the truth you need to have, apart from which you don't have God, is the reality that Jesus is God the Son and the Son of God. He's God the Son. We talk about Jesus, but how, how long has Jesus been around? Jesus isn't eternal, is he? God the Son's eternal, right? So before the incarnation, there wasn't a person named Jesus that we think of. There was God the Son. But in the incarnation, God the Son took on our humanity, but Jesus didn't exist before the incarnation. That man didn't walk the earth. He wasn't here. So the claim is he's really God the Son, and he's really a man. And that God the Son really took on full humanity. 
He was born as a human fully. He lived as a human. And of course, the gospel is he was sent by the Father, God the Son, sent by the Father to come and die for our sins, rise for our justification, redeem those God was calling to himself, redeem us to himself, and then eventually to set up an eternal kingdom in which God the Son, Jesus Christ, reigns as King, King of kings and Lord of lords forever. So that's the apostolic teaching that John is warning them, the deceivers who are coming to you are not bringing this teaching. They're promoting a false version of Christ. When we, uh, when we affirm things that aren't true, we always lose. And we may lose and we don't even know it. But if you present the gospel to someone and you say something like, uh, we're born separated from God, and Jesus is real life, and Jesus died to, so your sins would be covered, you'd be forgiven, and you'd get real life forever, and the person says, I'm not interested. Well, think about what they're saying. Uh, their choice says, I've got something better than Jesus. Uh, Jesus, you're making this offer, I've heard it, I'm not interested, because I've got something I prefer. Well, Jesus is life, and knowing Jesus is life, and they're choosing non-life, they're choosing death, and we say, is that a good choice? We would say, no, it's, it's a horrible choice. What about Christians? When you and I choose to sin, now, we all sin all the time. James says we all sin in many ways. So uh, we are saints. If you're a Christian, you're a saint who sometimes sins, right? We're not sinners. We're not sinners. Who are the epistles addressed to, guys? To the saints, to the holy ones. So if you're in Christ, you're holy. You're a saint who sometimes sins. Uh, sin isn't to characterize our life because we're now holy ones in Christ. We have Christ's righteousness. But when Christians choose to sin anyway, we're choosing death. You see this in Romans 8. Uh, if, you, if you abide in that sin, you die. In Romans 8, it's not talking about you can't lose eternal life, definitionally, right? can't lose eternal life. You don't get unsaved. But what you get is this experiential separation between you and God. Because you're choosing death. You're choosing to walk away from the relationship you've been brought into. And remember, salvation is all about relationship. So when God told Adam and Eve in Genesis, if you eat from the tree, you'll die, and we think of death as uh, the end of this physical life, death in the scripture is separation. So the body and the soul separate. Spiritual separation is what Jesus is primarily for us restoring now. Physical re restoration will occur in the resurrection. But when a Christian sins relationally with God our Father and Jesus our Savior and the Spirit who inhabits us, we're putting an emotional distance between us and that relationship we were saved into, which is choosing death. So we want to affirm who Jesus is and embrace the gospel. We embrace Christ in who he is and his saving work. And as Christians who've come to that, we want to say, Lord, we want to embrace Christ in how we live because we understand that is life. To, to dwell with Christ, to live with Christ, to be in that close relationship with Jesus, that's the experience of life. And anyone who's lived a life characterized 
by addiction or some sin that's sort of been the, the, uh, the thing that's been the monkey on their back for a long time, talk to them after they've come to Christ and they'll tell you there's no comparison between their existence, their experience before and after Christ because I was blind and now I see I was a slave and now I am free. So the doctrine of Christ is not only about salvation, it's also about the way we live. Embracing Christ through faithfulness and obedience is choosing life every day. That's what we should be doing. Uh, last on this thing, John's joy was great when he met believers from the church whose lives were characterized, he says, walking in truth. And we say that's the way they lived. So my question on this is, what did he see I saw some of your children, and this is what I saw. I saw them walking in the truth. What, what do you think his experience of those folks was? What did he see or what did he hear? Now, because he's writing to folks from this church about Christ, about do the doctrine of Christ, I assume whatever conversation he had, they were affirming the truth about Jesus. I assume that's the beginning. But I also assume, because as we'll see, John almost always connects truth with love, I assume that the demonstration of their embrace of Christ doctrinally was working itself out in the way they were treating others, that they were actively loving others. If John saw it, he could hear their testimony, but he also says specifically, I saw them. I saw them. They were doing things that displayed the love of God in Christ. That, that was the testimony if I watched them not just if I heard what they say. There is a joy that comes from embracing and living according to the truth that you just can't get any other way. And that's really John 8, 30 through 32. When you know the truth and you live in accordance with it, you get liberty, you get freedom. There's a witness to others of the reality of Christ in us when truth is seen by what we do. So just a question to think about. Uh, do others see me walking in truth? Sometimes the question is raised, if, uh, is there enough evidence to convict me of being a Christian? If that's illegal, would I be convicted? Would I be found guilty? But if others see the way we live, would they say, like John, that we are living according to the truth? They see it. It's the way we live. So truth. Uh, look at verses 1, 3, 5, and 6. That other key word he uses here as a theme is love. Again, he almost always connects the two. So look again, the elder to the elect lady and her children whom I love. Jesus Christ is the Father, Son, in truth and love. He says, here's the command, verse 5, that we love one another. Verse 6, this is love that we walk according to his commandments. A truth lived out in the life of a Christian is primarily defined as loving God and loving others. So remember to Jesus, what's the first great commandment? It's to love God. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's exactly what John's saying in this letter as well. Um, think about this. Uh, talk really is cheap. <laughs> and, and I love in Scripture, Kent read a text that's on my sheet this morning because of this very issue. You know, if God says something two or three times, you should say, I'm slow and I'm dull, but God's speaking. So, we can say we love someone or something, and the words may be meaningless. Listen to Jesus. This is from John 14, verse 15 and verse 21. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. If, propositionally, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. 
Verse 21, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. Now, if I say I love Jesus and I don't obey him, guys, I'm lying. I don't love Jesus. This is unconditional. There's, in fact, this is repeated over and over. If you love me, you'll obey me. Love is a verb. Love is what we do. Uh, listen to this from 1 John 3.17. So John 14 is vertical, John 3.17. If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. It's one of the verses I used to quote to my girls all the time. He doesn't say don't tell someone you love them. He says don't merely say it, that you must do it, that love is a verb, it's an action, it's what we do, not just what we say. In fact, you know, in uh, James 2 verse 18, James said in this famous discussion about uh, what does it look like for a person who has faith in Christ? What does that look like lived out in their life? In James 2.18, James says, I will show you my faith, which you can't see, right? Faith, uh, it's, it's an internal ascent. I'll show you my faith by my works. So he says, of faith, I'll show you my faith by my works. We would say the same thing about love. I will show you my love by my works, by what I do. Love is a verb, it's not a happy feeling. It can be a happy feeling, but if that's all it is, it's deficient. So based on what we do, do we love God? Based on obedience, based on faithfulness to God and his word. Would our spouse, our children, know we love them by how we speak and how we treat them? Uh, would, would people you go to school with or work with, would they know that Christ is in you because you love others? And I don't mean mushy, but things like I'm sharing the gospel because that's in their best interest, or I'm doing those things that serve them in the ways I'm capable of serving them, that I'm forgiving others because I'm called to, that's part of the badge, the honor of love, we forgive others who've harmed us. Would others say, would they see that kind of love in us, in me, in my life? Do we love others by sharing the gospel? That's a big one. Uh, people are often intimidated by, but it's what we're called to do. And for someone who doesn't have Christ, doesn't have God, sharing the gospel is the single biggest loving thing you can do for them. You don't accept it for them, but telling them there's a way out and there's life forever with joy and pleasure, that's the most loving thing we can do. Uh, Go to verses 7 through 11. This is the, the big rock. So John can't help but speak about truth and love because he knew Christ and he says truth and love is what he's all about. But verses 7 through 11 are the reason he wrote this letter. So he's mentioned those and they are big rocks, but verse 7 through 11 is the cause for this letter. And again, I'm going to read a couple passages. If you've got your Bible or app, turn to 1 John 2, 18 through 23. If you read these in order, 1 John, 2 John sounds like more of the same. So he started these themes in the first letter. So he says here, uh, 1 John 2.18, Children, it's the last hour, and as you have heard, that Antichrist, singular, Antichrist is coming. So now, many Antichrists, plural, have come. So on one hand, John knows his Bible, 
Uh, the Antichrist is seen in Daniel in the Old Testament. He's a little horn who boasts great things. And he's in Paul's writings in 2 Thessalonians 2. He's the man of sin or the man of lawlessness. In Revelation 13, he's the beast. In Matthew 24, he's the one standing in the temple of God. So John's aware that a specific singular individual has been prophesied by God that he's going to come in the time of the end. So he says, we know Antichrist singular, we know he's coming. But he also says, but guys, right now there are many Antichrists here already. Not the, not the one in the end, but that spirit of Antichrist, that, that spirit and that deceptive teaching that says there's, Jesus either isn't who he said he was, or there's an alternative Jesus, anything opposed to Christ, that stuff was already here when John wrote. So he continues and he says, of these deceivers, verse 19, they went out from us. They didn't stay with John, the apostles. They didn't remain within the apostolic teaching. He says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. If they had been of us, they would have continued with us. They'd still be with us, and they'd say the same things we say. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? Every claim that says Jesus is not fully God, not fully man, is not the Christ, every assertion is a lie, John says. God says. This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Remember John 14, 6, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Every claim to reconciliation with God, not founded on Jesus, John says, is a lie. If you turn to chapter 4 in 1 John, verses 1 through 6, John says, Beloved, don't believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. So he's not talking about ghosts. Or he's saying when you hear a person speak, when you hear someone make a claim, a religious claim, an ultimate reality claim, what spirit is informing what they're saying? So is it the Holy Spirit? If you read 1 Corinthians 12, Paul there writes, and no one says by the Holy Spirit, Jesus is accursed. If you hear that, you know it's not the Holy Spirit. Well, John's saying the same thing here. There's spiritual influence behind our beliefs, and, and reality and truth are apprehended spiritually. And that's what John's getting to here. So when he says, test the spirits, he's saying, listen to what they say, and who or what is informing the doctrine they're speaking to you. For many false prophets have gone out into the world in his day, many deceivers, many false prophets. Uh, by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Jesus Christ, the person of Jesus, everyone who confesses this, is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. The spirit of Christ rejecting, of Christ alternatives, is already here. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us, listens to the Bible, listens to the apostolic record. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. So that's from his first letter. He says, guys, they're already here. The lies about Jesus are already here and they're being propagated. Now we take that into 2 John. 
verses 7 through 11, he says, oh, actually, I wanted to say something before I forget. Maybe I already have. Yeah, you go through your notes, and it's like, oh, okay, I'll say it in another page. So, uh, Listen to verses 7 through 11 again. So many deceivers have gone out into the world, not one or two, many, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Everyone who goes on ahead doesn't abide in the teaching of Christ, does not, now listen to that phrase, does not have God does not have God, does not speak for God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting, for whoever greets him takes part in what John calls his wicked works. So Second John is bringing up that theme, and here's the thing. He's speaking generally and broadly in First John, but when he gets to Second John, he's telling them this. These deceivers, they're coming to your city. These guys are going to be knocking on your church's door and saying, we're one of you, we want to come in and we'll tell you how things are. John's warning them what he spoke of generally in 1 John, it's coming your way and you need to be prepared. And here's a few things. He, he says, um, don't... Uh, uh, don't uh, let him into your house. Don't greet him. Here's the thing. Remember back in the day when this was being written, if you were an itinerant teacher, and let's just say you're not famously known, and, and let's say you're with John's church in Ephesus, and you say, hey, God's called me to go out and speak to other churches. The elders in that church would write a letter of introduction for you. And you would take that to that church, and you would show it to the leaders, and you, you, it would say, um, Brian is coming, and Brian speaks with our blessing, and we've commissioned him to go out, and you can trust Brian. Well, what that would do, that was, if not carte blanche, that was Brian's entry into that local church. That local church would give him hospitality. They would put him up. They would feed him. They would take care of him. And they would give him the ability to speak and teach in that local church. So John is saying, when these guys show up, and you're looking at their bona fides, you ask them what they believe. In fact, when Jesus writes to the church at Ephesus in Revelation 2, he says, you test those who say they are apostles, but they aren't, and you found them out. They did exactly what John's saying here. So when John says, don't take them into your house and don't greet them, he's saying, don't do anything by which those who are spreading a false gospel and a false Christ are encouraged or in any way given more liberality in spreading these deceiving teachings. So if uh, a greeting might be something like, if I said, God bless you to this person who's spreading a false Jesus, I'm not going to say that to them. I'm not going to say, God speed. I'm not going to bring you into my house and feed you so that you are encouraged to keep up with this thing. That's what he's saying. It's not meant to be sort of a social slide. It's not some little dig. It's don't help advance the false teacher and the false teaching. And notice what's at stake. Verse 9, you do not have God. If I come and I bring this false teaching about Christ, it's because I do not have God. And as I want to wind down just for time's sake. Uh, um, 
if I can convince you that there's no God, if you're a professing atheist, and there really aren't any, Romans 1 says, but you could say that, or an agnostic, then you're, you're going to hell, and that's enough. I don't need to do anything more persuasive. But if you're religiously inclined, Satan's work is always to attack the person or work of Jesus. It's to offer substitutes, like these guys were doing. Jesus isn't all he said he was. We've got a, a different Jesus, a small version of Jesus. So Satan's work is always to attack the person or work of Jesus if it's religious claims that are in view. So here, it was the person of Jesus. Who and what is he? God the Son, fully God, and fully man. They're not saying that. They're attacking the person of Jesus. But if you go to Galatians, and we're not going there, but if you go to Galatians 1, when the Apostle Paul writes to the churches in that Galatian region, he says there, some of you are promoting a gospel, a version of the gospel, in which you're saying, Jesus, oh yeah, Jesus is the Messiah, absolutely. But this is how you get saved. You believe in Jesus and you get circumcised. You believe in Jesus and you keep elements of the law. So they didn't detract the person of Jesus. It was the gospel message of faith alone in Christ alone that they attacked. Not the person, but the work of Jesus. Paul said of those teachers, may they be cursed forever. Chapter 1. Chapter 5, he says, I wish they would cut their male portions off. I wish they would castrate themselves. So really strong language because if we don't have the real Jesus and the real gospel, we do not have God. That's what's at stake. That's the thing. Um, th think about uh, in John's day, all this was, it was just getting started, but he says already many. Guys, what does that look like today? I mean, forget everybody who says I'm a professing atheist or, or agnostic. Forget all those. Mormons, Jesus is a God, but not the God. He was created. His death does not fully accomplish anyone's salvation. Friends, Mormons will tell you they're Christians. They are not Christians. Mormonism is not Christianity. Jehovah Witnesses, Jesus is not God. He used to be Michael the archangel. He died on a stake and had a spiritual resurrection, but not a physical one. Jehovah Witnesses will tell you they are Christians. They are not Christians. Islam, there's about a billion Muslims around the world, says that Jesus was a prophet, but he's not God. and He's definitely not the Son of God. There's all kinds of things. By the way, this affects the way the Bibles get translated in the Muslim world. And a lot of the translations will not call Jesus the Son of God because they say Muslims say that means God had sex with a woman. It's like, stay with the text and then explain what it means. But this gets mistranslated intentionally by big groups that are evangelizing Muslims but will not call Jesus what God calls Jesus, God the Son or the Son of God. So Satan is a liar and Satan's religious and Satan's in religious circles and we want to be careful if we have the Son, we have the Father. And, and I want to, uh, just on application, I want to be careful when I say this. So John says, deceivers, false prophets, wicked works. Now you might, you, in fact, I'm sure some of us here, we have friends, relatives, co-workers, neighbors who are, who are Muslim, 
Jehovah Witnesses, Mormons, maybe, maybe other religious sects as well. <clears throat> and you might say, they're not wicked. They're not trying to promote a false gospel. But they believe lies if they're in those groups. And the kindest thing you can do is share the gospel and ask God to give them enlightenment, that Jesus is the light. He's revelation. That's the kindest thing we can do. We don't have to be argumentative about it. It's not us that's going to change anyone's mind. So I want to be careful. We're not saying they're a dirty Muslim and they're going to hell. We want to say they're a sinner like I was and they need Christ and they need the truth and they need someone to tell them this is the truth, right? So we're not, we're not condemning two or three billion people because they believe a lie now. We want to be, we want to fulfill Jesus' command. We want to tell people from all those backgrounds, Christ is truth. Christ is Messiah. Christ is Savior. Trust Christ. And guys, the Holy Spirit is at work in the message of the gospel to bring some to eternal life. We don't control that. But we're to be like Jesus, the sower and the seed. We're throwing out, we're dispensing the seed, the word of God, which is the truth about Jesus and us as well. So as we're thinking about that, uh, does that sound like our life? Are we being careful with the people we listen to? Podcasts, radio, streaming, reading. Are we being careful with the teachers who say they represent Christ or that they're speaking orthodoxy? Do, are we careful? <laughs> Do we test the spirits? Uh, are, are, are we practicing discernment so that Christ is honored and we're, we're embracing the real Christ? Real Christians follow a real Savior, and we share a real gospel and a real hope with others. Everything short of what John's talking about is a lie, and it takes us, it keeps us in death, and it leads us to eternal death, or others. We want to be part of the solution. Well, stand with me if you would, and let's close by reading uh, from 1 John 4, 7 through 11. Read with me. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God has been made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us, and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another.